Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This is the 28th of 35 classes on our jhana review. This is the fifth and final part of our uh, review or look at the Anapanasati Sutta and how this fits in with jhana practice. So I'm just going to go back two paragraphs from where we stopped. The Buddha is talking about the development of refined or right mindfulness resting in equanimity. equanimity. His words, when this occurs, this person remains mindful of all mental qualities, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. That last line there, putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world, is the, is the culmination of Dhamma practice. What the Buddha is saying and what we're learning here is to not take anything personal. So the way that I see myself in relation to the world can either be stressful because I don't understand dukkha, or it can be a, it can be a calm quality of mind resting in understanding of what it means to be a human being. There will be dukkha. Then the Buddha says, this is how mindfulness of the in-breath and the out-breath is appropriately developed, right? There's a right way and a wrong way to do this, appropriately developed. So as the, to bring the four foundations of mindfulness to their, to their culmination. So there's a point to developing these four foundations of mindfulness, excuse me, that is established on our cushion in jhana meditation, but then we apply it. And we apply it to ourselves and how we live in the world and how we understand what it means to be a human being, not what it means to be some kind of um, ethereal being or some kind of being that has an endless number of lives and can, can somehow learn from one life to the next. This is it. This is the life we get. This is what Siddhartha taught us. And he also taught us in many ways, don't waste it. Don't waste it by being entangled in the world. Learn to gain control of your mind so you can be present for each and every moment of your life. This is how we live a human life. Not by acquisition, not by position, not by making your voice heard. By developing a common, peaceful mind rooted in understanding. So this class begins with the applying that refined mindfulness to these seven factors for awakening. So these are things that, excuse me, these seven factors or seven qualities of mind are what, de what develops out of Dhamma practice. It's not something that we specifically try to acquire, but what the Buddha is teaching here is to recognize that you're gaining control of your mind, or maybe we could say regaining control of our minds if we ever had it. And this is what it looks like. And how do the four foundations of mindfulness appropriately, appropriately develop 
so as to bring the seven factors of awakening to their culmination. Whenever a monk, remember this was early in the Buddha's dispensation, so there weren't any, any nuns in the Sangha yet. Whenever a monk remains focused on the body, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, again, while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world, their mindfulness is steady and continuous. When I don't need this, when this body is no longer causing me distraction because I need it to be somehow different or fit in the world in a different way than it is, then I'm putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. And my concentration is steady and continuous because I'm not taking anything personal in this moment. It's just me. It's just this form living this life. Then the Buddha says, when mindfulness is steady and continuous, then mindfulness as a factor for awakening becomes directed. It becomes directed. It becomes something that we can use and direct it how we want. When mindfulness is steady and continuous, it forms the foundation, the foundation for the culmination of its development. There's a little bit of a... Um, a circular factor now that we're talking about between concentration and refined mindfulness. And it's that, um, that directed thought that takes me from concentration to refined mindfulness. So refined mindfulness. And the reason why I use that word refined, uh, I could use the word right implies that there's such a thing as wrong mindfulness. And so wrong mindfulness would be just the best example is the modern mindfulness mo movement, which is now the, the world's biggest religion, I think. But that's a mindless kind of mindfulness. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a scattered um, way of being mindful, meaning I should be mindful of everything that I'm doing. I should be mindful when I'm driving my car. I should be mindful when I'm washing the dishes. I should be mindful. When I, well, no. We should be mindful when we're practicing the Dhamma. And we should use that refined mindfulness to, to frame our lives within, within the Eightfold Path. And this then becomes the impersonal way we live in the world. The Buddha continues, remaining mindful in this way they examine this quality of mind. We start looking at our own minds, becoming familiar. Rather than having our minds direct us to always react to what's going on, we now can use our minds to frame our human life. That's what our minds are for. With discernment or right view, they develop understanding of this quality of mindfulness, this, this quality of mindfulness. Again, it's a refined quality of mindfulness that we're talking about. When one remains mindful in this way, examining and developing understanding of the quality of mindfulness with discernment, then mindfulness as a as a quality as a fact as I'm sorry, then mindfulness of certain qualities as a factor for awakening arises. We start learning what to focus on, what is important. This is how right mindfulness is established as a factor or a quality for awakening. When one examines and comes to a comprehension 
of mindfulness as a factor of awakening with discernment, now investigation of the Dhamma arises. So this is that transition phase that um, most people go through when they realize that this isn't, the, the Dhamma isn't something we study like a school subject, that there's going to be a test at the end. What we're doing here in class, class after class after class, is listening to these different teachings that the Buddha gave us and then integrating them into our lives as we're ready to. And that's different for everyone. In fact, everybody's experience with the Dhamma is unique to themselves, but all of it is framed by the Eightfold Path. We're just doing this one thing. That's one of the reasons why these classes are so successful. We don't get into adding to the path. We don't have a ninefold path or a onefold path. We have an eightfold path. And we stay focused on that. This is how investigation of the Dhamma is established as a factor for awakening. So as I increase my mindfulness, I, I now can start applying the things that I've learned. And we talk about that a lot. That people will say, um, I listened to this 10 times and now I finally saw how to apply it. Or I realized this in my life and now I know how to apply the Dhamma. Directly in our moment by moment life. There's no Dhamma for yesterday and there's no Dhamma for tomorrow. Dhamma practice is right here and right now. When investigation of the Dhamma arises in one who examines and comes to a comprehension of that quality with wise discernment, then investigation of the Dhamma arising as a factor for awakening becomes aroused. It's not the culmination. It becomes aroused. Now your practice will have um, a much deeper meaning and you'll start noticing how it's, it's bringing benefit into your life. This is why, because you're, you're developing naturally the seven factors necessary for awakening. This is how investigation of the Dhamma is established as a factor or a quality of awakening. It's through the practice itself, through deepening concentration and refined mindfulness. When one who examines and comes to a comprehension of investigation of the Dhamma arising as a factor for awakening with discernment, now persevering effort arises. So now we're, we're recognizing the benefits. And this can happen in the first two classes or eight years in. But at some point, we begin to understand the benefits of practicing the Dhamma in this moment. And when we start seeing that benefit, now this persevering effort right effort also becomes aroused in us. We're seeing that we're enjoying our lives more. We're seeing that we're enjoying ourselves more because we're, we're lessening, diminishing the way that we're taking things personally in the world. And that's usually a gradual step-by-step -step process, but every step along the way, we can recognize these seven factors of awakening coming to their, um, arousal and culmination. When persevering effort arises in one who examines, analyzes, 
and comes to a comprehension of the quality with discernment, then persevering effort arising as a factor of awakening becomes aroused. So now our, our practice is beginning to, to um, waxing a little poetic, bear, uh, bear gain, what's the, gain some wings, takes flight. It becomes easier, it seems. Those two-a-day sits are not something that we have to do anymore. There's something that we look forward to. Our sitting becomes a true refuge. I pra our practice itself becomes a true refuge. Our sangha becomes a true refuge. This is how persevering effort is established as a factor or a quality for awakening. <coughs> when one whose persevering effort arises... Now joyful engagement with the Dhamma also arises, or rapture. When joyful engagement with the Dhamma arises in one whose persistence is aroused, then joyful engagement with the Dhamma as a factor for awakening becomes aroused as well. Do you see how we're um, inspiring our own practice for what we're talking about here? Does anybody not see that? It's the, it's the Dhamma itself that has this um, that has our practice bear fruit and take wing, to take flight. This is how joyful engagement with the Dhamma is established as a factor or quality for awakening. When one who is joyfully engaged with the Dhamma, the body grows calm and the mind grows calm. When the body and mind of a practitioner is joyfully engaged in the, with the Dhamma, then tranquility as a factor for awakening arises. Right? Now we understand at a very deep level because we're experiencing concentration and calm. And we like it. It feels good. We might be realizing for the first time in our lives we have control of something that used to be foreign to us, the workings of our own mind. Isn't that kind of tragic that human beings are born without an understanding of their own minds? But that seems to be the case. That's what Siddhartha discovered. There is dukkha. Where does dukkha come from? From craving for and clinging to a different view of self than is even humanly possible. That's the second noble truth. The third noble truth is that we can understand this. And practice is about understanding what? What? My mind. Each, each and every one of us who is a Dharma practitioner is learning about their mind. And learning how to control your mind. Not in a tight way. You know, not in, not in an attention-inducing way. Oh, I have to be in control of my mind. I can't fall into any eye-making. No, if we fall into eye-making, we recognize it, we take a breath, and we get out of it. That's what leads to a calm mind. Having control of your mind means letting go of the need to control everything else. Because the only thing we have to control is the one thing that we can control. Our own minds. And that's how calm is established. That's how tranquility is established. That's how refined mindfulness informs each and every thought. 
the Buddha says, this is how tranquility is established as a factor for awakening. When one who is tranquil, the mind and body calm, the mind develops concentration. We begin with jhana practice and we end with jhana. We, we end with a well-concentrated mind. The world is no longer a distraction. I'm no longer a distraction. How do I become no longer a distraction? By radical acceptance of who and what I am. I'm a human being. A human, a human being has feelings and thoughts and thoughts attached to a feeling. That's what describes our lives, isn't it? How do you feel? What do you think about how you feel? Well, now we can learn to not take those feelings personally. Not let my feelings and my thoughts about my feelings, my emotions, describe me to myself. Now I can use my mind to see things clearly, the way it was meant to be. When the mind of one who is tranquil and well-concentrated, then concentration as a factor for awakening arises. Now we're making use of all our Dhamma work. This is how concentration is established as a factor or a quality for awakening. When one whose concentration is established, equanimity arises. When equanimity arises, excuse me, then equanimity as a factor for awakening arises. Right? We're starting to learn that quality of mind known as equanimity, or another word would be calm. We're realizing that we can get up off our cushion and go out into the world and do the things that we always did, but the experience is completely different. There's no tension. There's no struggle. There's no conflict. Why? Because we've ended conflict in our, in our own lives. And if we're not carrying it around with us, we don't experience it. This is how equanimity is established as a factor for awakening. Furthermore, one remains mindful of the quality of mind in reference to four noble truths. So now we're developing this practice to that profound level where we, we, pro, and we profoundly understand these four noble truths. It's a penetrating understanding. It's not just reading the script. The Four Noble Truths, as I'm going to read them in just a moment, are simple. It's just a few words. But the profundity is unbelievable, isn't it? It's everything. Remain mindful of knowing that this is stress. That's the first noble truth. That's our first task, is understanding this is stress when it arises how it arises, what to do with it. This is stress. And then understanding the origination of stress. Craving originates and clinging maintains dukkha. That's the second noble truth. So the first noble truth is coming in contact with the world. Wait a minute, there's dukkha here. But I can understand it. And I cannot lose my mind over it because it's, it's a common occurrence. It's part of having a human life. When the Buddha described dukkha, he described it in this way. Birth is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. <coughs> Coughing is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. What is he describing there in those four qualities? 
That's human life, right? We're born as a consequence of having a human life. There's going to be dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Along the way, we're going to get sick. Along the way, we're, if, we're, if we're fortunate enough, I think about a friend of mine, Ken Dodd, who best friend, he died when I was 14 years old. I'm pretty fortunate to have 68 years. Aging is part of dukkha, but I'm glad I have it. Death might be, but I don't, I'm, I'm not afraid of it anymore. So it's not a factor. Then he would say, getting what you, getting what you, how do you say it? Getting what you don't want is dukkha. And grasping after needing more is also dukkha. And he would always finish that by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates is dukkha. Form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness or ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Understanding the, the origination of stress, understanding the cessation of stress. The third noble truth is this is the cessation of stress. Actually having the experience of ending your own stress-inducing thoughts and thought constructs. The fourth noble truth is this is the eightfold path leading to the cessation of dukkha. Understanding that at a, at a profound level. It's just this simple eightfold path that anybody can understand and integrate into their lives once they have developed a little bit of concentration. Then the Buddha says, in this way, one remains mindful of the quality of mind free of distraction internally and externally. I've ended conflict in my mind. Internally, I'm no longer in conflict with myself. I'm no good enough. This and that, all the nonsense that we tell ourselves. And I'm also externally letting go of it. I'm not seeing myself as, as a mirror to the world and what happens to me is all personal. No, what happens to me is described as the first noble truth. As a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be dukkha. And that's all we need to know about it. So what are we going to do about that dukkha is learn not to take it personally. Learn not to lose our minds over situations that there is no reason to. In this way, one remains mindful of the quality of mind free of distraction internally and externally. One remains mindful of the phenomena of the origination of qualities of mind and the arising and passing away. What's the phenomena of mind? It's the same thing as describing the phenomena of anything. The phenomena of mind is my life. Where do we live? Human beings live with a mind united in a body. It's best when we have a practice that can keep that mind united in its body because then it's not taking anything personally. It's just living life the way we're supposed to live our lives. There is the knowledge of the maintenance of qualities of mind and their recollection, independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. My thoughts are my thoughts. I'm not attaching them to anything in the world. I'm not qualifying my thoughts or myself in the world in any way. Independent of and not clinging to anything in the world. This is how one remains mindful of the seven factors of awakening in and of themselves. Buddha says that so many times, in and of themselves. He means without, a, without 
adapting it without altering this in any way, without embellishing life, without coloring it to be something that I want, which is rooted in craving rather than just radical acceptance of human life. The Buddha then says, I came to direct knowledge of fabrications, direct knowledge of the origination of fabrications. In fact, a simple way of describing a fabrication is telling a lie to yourself. Telling yourself that you should be playing center field for the Yankees when you're five foot seven and slow of foot. You ain't going to make it. Let it go. Or any other fantasy that we put ourselves in. That's a fabrication. What is reality? This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. Just the pure moment. Let me say it this way. The, the pure experience of this moment is human life. If I'm going to be there, I have to prepare my mind for the purity of this moment, don't I? How do I do it? By purifying my mind. By letting go of all the nonsense that I, that I developed just as a consequence or even as a, a defense from not understanding what human life is all about. That there will be dukkha. As a consequence of having this human life, I'm not going to get everything I want. But if I can let go of that, then I then I have everything, don't I? Because I'm not craving after anything. I'm not like a guy with a big pile of gold and he's still looking for another piece. I'm here. I'm living my life. I'm doing what we all do. But now I'm living it with a calm and peaceful mind because I understand what each and every moment of human life is about. There will be dukkha. I came to direct knowledge of fabrications, direct knowledge of the origination of fabrications, direct knowledge of the cessation of fabrications, and direct knowledge of the Eightfold Path leading to the cessation of fabrications. Let me just read that again because this is what we're doing. The paragraph <coughs> is a good synopsis. I came to direct knowledge of fabrications. Direct knowledge of the origination of fabrications. That's the second noble truth. Direct knowledge of the cessation of fabrications, the third noble truth. And direct knowledge of the eightfold path that leads to the cessation of fabrications. Fourth noble truth. Then the Buddha says, now if anyone, this is so inspiring this part. Now if anyone developed these four foundations of mindfulness in this manner, for seven years, one could expect either complete understanding here and now, or if there is any clinging in and maintaining or remaining in this present life. When I read that, that's when I knew I was on to something. Because all my years in modern Buddhism, and I'm not putting any of it down, all everybody I met was sincere in what they were teaching but they all taught that you can't awaken in this lifetime. I remember how many times I heard that. Awakening is impossible in this lifetime, but keep going and maybe in a zillion lifetimes in the future, you'll get to some, you'll get to Tulsita Buddhist heaven. I went along with the practice, but it's so self-defeating, isn't it? To think that way and hear that it's taught that way. I wanted to know what does it mean? What does it mean to awaken? Why am I practicing? Why did this guy even teach anything if it, if you can't experiencing it in a human life. And then I realized that the Buddha didn't teach anything 
that a human being couldn't directly experience, including, including this direct experience of awakening. And then the Buddha doesn't look, leave us hanging on seven years. He says, let alone seven years, if anyone perfectly develops the four foundations of mindfulness in this manner for six or five or four or three or two or one year, or for six months or three months or one month, for two weeks, for seven days, one could expect either complete understanding here and now, or if there was any clinging and maintaining and remaining in this present lifetime. What do we talk about in our discussions? A lot of it is about the recognition of what we're clinging to and what we're maintaining. And now we're ready to let it go. And I, every one of you has said that to me in our, in our class. I saw this in myself. I took a breath and I let it go. Friends, this is the direct path for the purification of all beings. For the cessation of sorrow and regret. For the disappearance of pain and distress. For establishing the right method of practice. And for complete unbindings. In other words, these four foundations of mindfulness. And by the way, our retreat that starts Friday night is on the four foundations of mindfulness. When one is mindful of the arising and passing away of all internal and external phenomena, their mind and body united, the, their quality of mind established in concentration and equanimity the, develop, the development of four foundations of mindfulness brings the seven factors of awakening to culmination as a consequence of, of the right method, as the Buddha said. This is how the four foundations of mindfulness are appropriately developed so as to bring the seven factors of awakening to their useful, useful culmination. This last section is known as subtitled Clear Knowing and Release. And how are the seven factors of awakening appropriately developed so as to bring right understanding or right view and release from clinging to views ignorant of Four Noble Truths to their culmination? When one develops mindfulness in this manner, as taught, and this is a different, this is why I call it refined mindfulness, because this is a completely different mindfulness than I learned anywhere else. When one develops refined mindfulness in this manner, as a factor for awakening, mindfulness is established on seclusion. It's established on dispassion. It's established on cessation and established in relinquishment of clinging to wrong views. Views ignorant of four noble truths. And how do I know which views they are? They're the ones that cause stress. They're the ones that are obviously rooted in eye-making and in sometimes very subtle ways. But that's what continued practice is for. We realize ever deepening levels of eye making that we might not have even as recognized as eye making. And here it is, right? And what happens when we, when we recognize that? We take a breath. We treat ourselves with great gentleness. When they do this, they develop investigation of the Dhamma as a factor of awakening. They develop persistence persistence as a factor for awakening. They developed joyful engagement or rapture as a factor of awakening. They developed tranquility as a factor of awakening. 
and they develop concentration as a factor for awakening. They develop equanimity as a factor for awakening. These seven factors of awakening are dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation. These seven factors of awakening, when fully developed, results in relinquishment of all views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. This is how the seven factors for awakening are appropriately, appropriately developed so as to bring right understanding or right view and release from clinging to ignorant views to their culmination. This is what the Buddha said, gratified the monks were delighted in the Buddha's words. And I hope you all were too. Thank you all. So that's quite, I always see that as kind of like a, uh, a symphony coming to a crescendo, you know, this ending, uh, really describing what we become when we become human beings. Or maybe I should say we recognize our own humanity. So I want to hear what you all have to say. And I'm going to start as usual with Jane. Hello, Jane. Hey, John. I was debating whether I could get through this or not, but I'm going to try. Um, when I was, I told you we had to put Bela down today. And as I'm at the vet's office, um, I, I'm not showing my face. Too much okay. <laughs> Um But I realized that, you know, how much my practice was coming into play because I was present for the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I um, you know, I understood what had to happen. That was part of life. And it's just I didn't have any thoughts about, you know, I wish this wouldn't happen or it, it had to happen. And it was sad, but beautiful at the same time. So yeah. I just felt my practice in action. Thank you, Jane. Yeah, even something as tragic as putting a, a loved pet down, and it is awful, um, to just be present for the whole thing. You know, you were in that way. You were present for all of of uh, uh, Bela's life. You know, including the part you don't want to face, but at least you were able to stay present for it. And that is a beautiful thing, even though it's tragic. Thank you, Jane. Sadika, how are you tonight? There you Hi. are. Yeah, I'm good. Um, it was, yeah, it's, um, I'm practicing um, the meditation. It's, I think I'm getting better. Um, but um, that whole fundamental thing was really interesting for me that because nowadays I have so much in my mind and I don't understand where all this comes when I am so stressed out, my my back muscles hurts and I sometimes even I don't know why it's hurting because I don't know where the stress is coming from. So that is um, that's interesting that I will explore and see how I can identify them and understand them. Yeah, sometimes that can be just your own um, un unrecognized resistance to what you're doing, just because it's so it's so new. Um, are you using the guided meditations from the website when you meditate? I'm using no, the one Julia sent me. I don't know which one is that. It's an uh, app. Uh, oh, um, on the website, there's. Um, 
guided meditations that reflect the the verbiage that we use here, meaning the, the verbiage that reflects the four noble, the four foundations of mindfulness. So I suggest you use that, and that's on. They're on the website, and you can download them. Okay, I will. Yeah. I will do that. Thank you. Yeah, and there, there's there's from five to forty five minute guided meditation. So if you want to just start with five minutes or ten minutes, you can do that, and then build yourself up over time. But, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm doing. Sorry, I'm doing the five minutes, and I feel like by end the five minutes, my mind is so calm that I fall asleep. <laughs> that's a, that's okay. Try to stretch it out to ten minutes, and if you can do twice a day, that'd be great. The, yeah, twice I'm a day practice twice. really makes it big. Good, good. I'm glad you joined us, and I'm glad you're gaining benefit from your practice. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Dev, how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. Um, how you doing? I'm good. Um, I'll be observing noble silence and uh, look forward to seeing you this weekend. Yeah, me too. Well, good. Yeah, let's talk later in the week, too, if we get a chance. Sure. Hello, Brian. Dama teacher Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm uh, good, but I'm 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 stuck in craving for those. I, <laughs> well, I to be fair, I did it. It's a little mischievous. I did it for Zach just to be to do a little uh, a poke because because Zach <laughs> wore a certain things? shirt. <laughs> no, no, I didn't see that. Okay, let me. I'm I'm bringing I'm bringing Buckeyes for the 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 potluck on Saturday just for you, buddy. <laughs> I have no qualms with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's good. It's hard to have qualms with peanut butter and chocolate. You know so. those things? I never knew that they were called Buckeyes. It, they made a football team over these things, huh? That's right. That's right. Um, no, I've lost my mindfulness because I'm thinking about chocolate-covered peanut butter, too. <laughs> Can we end this stupid class so I can go get some chocolate? Right, let's just go get some peanut butter. Um, <laughs> it, it is, it is, it is humbling that that all you have to do is sit and be mindful of your breath. And when you develop that a little bit more, you start to develop calm, and you start to develop concentration and discernment, and all of a sudden you realize that I'm mindful. That I'm being persistent, that I'm calm, that I'm happy about it, and and it's it's just this beautiful process that unfolds in front of you, and within you, just by coming back to the breath, by coming back to your feelings, coming back to your thoughts, and just watching what's happening in your mind, leads to this unbinding and this release from stress. So, yeah. thank you. Uh, thank you, Brian. Again, let me put you on a spot a little bit. Do you find that as you develop your Dhamma practice, you've naturally become much more gentle with yourself? Oh, yeah. I, I was I was talking to one of my mentorees last night, and she was asking if I ever beat myself up anymore. I'm like, no. That just seems silly to me now. Like, why would I beat myself up? <laughs> it does sound silly. But, uh, but I used to. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Anybody mind being on camera? Too bad. 
No, if you don't want to, just tell me. But Zach, you're on. Thank you for the teaching. It's great, great, great teaching tonight, John. Thank you. Teaching and the commentary. And uh, I don't, I don't think I can say it much better than than Brian just did. But to watch this process unfold, it's just like a snowball, yeah. right? And it just it just blows through all these fabrications once you really are able to sit with it and understand what, yeah. what's going on. Um, I've had a couple really good and powerful insights over the last few weeks. Really, I mean, and speaking to the power of the Sangha, you know, in conversation with Matt and listening to one of the teachings, Cody, your commentary from a few weeks ago and, and just kind of all comes together in, in recognizing the, the second era yeah. and what we're doing to ourselves and, you know, uh, recognizing the arising of it and taking a breath and letting it go. Yeah. So, pretty yeah. powerful stuff. It is. And it's very gentle stuff too, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you, Zach. Hello, Raquel. How are you tonight? I got you from here. Yeah, but I would bet you're you're making some pretty good progress too, no? Ups and downs, but I'm a lot better today than I was when I first started. So yeah, me too. Good. I would say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Raquel. Thank Cody, good evening, my friend. Right. Um, as I was listening to the teaching today, uh, somewhere, somewhere near the first half, I think. <clears throat> um, you were talking about um, the quality, I, I don't, I, the, maybe it was the, the quality of equanimity or the quality of refined mindfulness, how noticing, you know, for me at least, it's still remarkable to me when I notice the existence of of me just being in the moment and not judging that moment and not taking things personally and just existing in that space. If I can do that in a, in a, in a few moments during the week, then I'm very happy. The idea that, um, because it's so powerful. Yeah. Right yeah. Me. No. And it, and it, and it's, um, it's, it can be, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's not something that I experience without this Dhamma practice. Oh, it's yeah. not something yeah, that I experience yeah. unless I sit and um, and uh, and I feel very fortunate to have those few moments. Um, yeah. But then there was something in there about you know when this becomes constant then you can focus 
when it becomes constant, then you can, I, I can't remember what the exact words were, and maybe you could refresh my memory, but um, then you can know where to, where to direct your focus. Yes. Um, it, yeah, your concentration is steady and continuous. Right. And, yes. And, but, and of course, and it, when we first come to the Dhamma, our concentration isn't steady at all, and it's certainly not continuous. I didn't know anything. I mean, I had been meditating, so-called, for many, many years. I never developed any concentration. It wasn't until I did this, and that that is what made the difference. And even that little bit, and you, you we've all, all experienced it, even that little bit of concentration with the framework, we're able to put it to good use right away. And so that just that little bit of steadiness and a little bit of continuity, maybe I can hold my breath for two or three breaths and not be distracted. But that's the beginning, right? That's the open door to gaining control of our mind. And it becomes ever more steady and ever more continuous. And these things that we talked about tonight arise as a natural consequence of Dhamma practice. We don't have to strive for them. We don't have to go grasp after them. We don't have to hope that I got, I think I got the six factor. You know? it's just, <laughs> here I am. You know? And again, we're present for our own life. I never thought that was, I mean, what, what do I care about that? Until I found out about it. And then I realized that that's where my life is. It's right here in this moment. And I still remember when I really first started understanding where the Buddha was going, but not quite there yet myself. Um, but understanding that I needed to be present for this life, there was a, I still remember this, this is probably 30, more than 30 years ago. There was a sadness over the time. I went through a period where I was beating myself up now for all the time that I wasted not being present. But of course, that's just dukkha too, isn't it? And how do you well, how do you deal with all that stuff, the past and the future, by being in the present? Hmm. And my mind is steady and continuous, no matter what's occurring, you know, internally and externally, steady and continuous. I feel like I should write a steady and continuous. <laughs> Steady and continuous. Dhamma train. <laughs> yeah, Dhamma train. Uh, Zach, how does steady and continuous in the light of impermanence? Ah, that's the that's kind of this the uh, almost the paradox. But what you're what you're doing internally is just being a reference point to what's occurring. But even though every moment is quite different because every moment in life is quite different. But your mind is calm. Calm but and equanimity. Steady is moving. If, what's that? Steady is moving. Yeah. It's impermanent, but it's it's We're not, just a reference. It's not point. a destination. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the destination in Dharma practice is awakening. But that's just practice, isn't it? So steady and continuous. Do you notice that that you're you're able to have 
or maintain a calm mind, maybe not 100% of the time, but a calm mind in situations where you might have gotten distracted or upset or, or wish something was different. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's steady and continuous, isn't it? Even if you didn't see it as that. But even that state of mind is impermanent, right? That's yeah. The, we're talking about states of mind, which arise and pass away as well, right? Yeah. So. And so um, when I have to put a, excuse me, Jane, for using you as a subject, when I have to put a dog down, you know, a, a beloved pet, I feel sadness because that's appropriate, isn't it? But I'm no longer averse to feeling sadness. I'm able to just stay with it. You know, when Jane was talking about that, I just, my mind keeps going back to this picture of walking into the funeral parlor at my father's wake and seeing him in the box for the first time. And it was this, this tremendous feeling of deep sadness, but just deep appreciation for having known this man, you know, and that he lived 101 years. And so that, and when we start applying that to our own life, and really being gentle with ourselves and really start appreciating the life that we're living changes everything, isn't it? Continuous and steady. Is that what you were talking about, by the way? Yeah, just the, you know, continuous versus impermanent. It seems like there's some conflict there, but I'm just getting caught in language. I, I understand yeah. the concept in, in practice in my experience, so. Yeah, within the, within the world of impermanence, we're able to maintain a calm and steady mind through concentration. That's what concentration means, isn't it? I have control of my mind. So Thank you, that. Yeah, and then you there's your impermanence. I didn't hear what it's you also said. Continuous. <laughs> what did you say, Cody? I said until you croak. Until you croak, yeah. And there's your impermanence. Yeah, everything changes. One breath in the beginning, one at the end. What are we going to do in, with the in-between breaths? What are we going to do with them, Rob? Um, yeah, I have to agree with, with Brian as well that to, to, to be present for this unfolding of those seven factors is is truly awesome. Yeah. In the beginning, it kind of sneaks up on you as you, as the first mindfulness really starts to take root and, and the concentration starts to take first root. First mindfulness. Um, but then, slowly, slowly, these these things start to fit together and, and one, one leads to another, although the, the sequence is not always the same. Yeah, it's definitely not linear. No. Um, but yeah, little bits of this add to little bits of that, and then, yeah. you know, and strengthen each other. Uh, but it's uh, it's so gratifying to, to, to be present for that. And to realize you did it yourself. Yeah. And for yourself. And that you've got, then you've, you've by dumb luck and persistence, stumbled onto the right thing. Yeah. Once you recognize that this is the right thing, then um, persistence and, and uh, joyful engagement is, is not hard. Yeah. It's, it's almost inevitable. Yeah, it becomes a natural state or a natural quality of mind. Mm -hmm. Again, as Buddha taught here tonight. 
you know, these seven factors of awakening become continuous and steady, no matter what's occurring, even when you got something tragic happens. We can simply feel the, the appropriate human emotion. You know, the Buddha taught that we gain the ability to think what we want to think when we want to think it, when it's appropriate. So that doesn't mean we have some kind of uh, monolithic thought process. We're able to to feel the entire gamut. Is that the right gamut or gambit? Gamut of all human emotions. We're human beings. Why shouldn't I feel all these things? <laughs> I don't want to not feel sadness when it's appropriate just because I'm some kind of meditator. I'm above all that. That's not living life, is it? Then why shouldn't you use your mind for what you can use? Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Hello, David. So much like the jhanas, these are <coughs> things that the Buddha is pointing out that you'll you'll encounter, you'll experience. So when you're on from this lifelong ignorance to this transition to understanding, you will experience these things. Yeah. And it's not something to grasp after or check off. It's just something that becomes a natural outgrowth of what you'll experience. Mm -hmm. Of course, you'll be joyful to understand in impermanence and how it fits with yeah. this is not me so to me it's it's like this the Buddha keeps telling you this is what you're experience but yeah. it's impermanent so therefore don't grasp after it so to me it's it's he's always encouraging you and you know people think this whole thing's about dukkha and suffering but yeah. yet it's joyful when you understand it you know, it's liberating. It propels you to want to practice and sit for two times a day. And it's not a chore. It's a it's a mechanism to become more mindful mm -hmm. so you can experience it and be there and not have these moments of mindfulness and joy, but it just becomes what really what you are. Mm -hmm. So sit twice a day for you <laughs> thank you david everybody hear that sit twice a day right maddie you are correct sir thank you for <laughs> teaching joe thank you sangha for all the wisdom and practice um, i'm gonna observe noble silence thank you does anybody have anything else they'd like to add or talk about We'll finish with David. Somehow, in the dark. It's a strange camera. I have it just a certain way. There's no uh, doesn't pick up any light. We'll finish with meta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in breath and your out breath. Uh, there's those buckets. What are they called? Man. What a distraction they are. They're like Homer Simpson. All right. Good.
Take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your in-breath and your out-breath unite your mind and your body. And either are the, these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta describing the qualities of an awakened human being. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. <clears throat> Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, and having completed the path, they do not give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Peace, everyone. Retreat begins Friday at 7. Thank you, John. See you Friday. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.